0: Hello and welcome to the My Favourite Film Podcast with me, your host, Gav Smith. This is the final episode of Series 1 and in this episode it will be a conclusion, talking about all the films that we've talked about in the last 23 episodes, but we'll be missing out episode 19, which was a special Halloween episode where we talked about lots. Before I get on to the podcast and talking about the different films, just the normal contact information if you want to get in touch with me here at the podcast the best way of doing it is by going onto your email and emailing me at my at gmail.com you can contact me on Twitter at my fav film on instagram at my favorite film podcast and there's the website www.myfavoritefilm.com there you go and that's all the ways that you can get in touch with us at the moment. You'll also actually, if you search on Facebook, there is a My Favourite Film page and a My Favourite Film community group. Today's episode is slightly different because in today's episode, I'm not talking about one film. This is, as I've said, a conclusion episode where I'm going to wrap up this series because as of the next episode, we will be starting on Series 2. And more of that will be coming out when a Series 2 Episode 0 drops. In this episode, I am joined by some of my previous guests from the... Previous episodes. McHill, Emma Hazlitt, Ian Robinson, Kevin Lyons, Mary Wilde, Richard Hazlitt, Rob Simpson, Sarah Cleaver, Seamus Doide, Graham Williamson, and Gary Coleman. All of those have appeared on the show before. Uh, All of them talked about their favourite films, and each of them has got a little bit to say about all of the other favourite films that have gone through. So let's just say
1: hello to all of those people. Hi, Gav. Thank you for uh, inviting me to be your first guest.
2: Hi, it's Emma. I'm glad to be back on the podcast with you, Gav.
1: Hi,
3: Gav. This is Ian Robinson. Um, I have to say that my favourite film's been my definitely my favourite po- podcast over the past year. And um, it's been a perfect companion to the weekend renovation works I've been doing.
4: Hi, Gav. It's Kevin Lyons. Hi,
5: Gav. This is Mary Wilde. Here to share some opinions and thoughts with you about films you've covered on your podcast recently.
6: Hi, it's Richard here. I spoke to Gav about Back to the Future, and uh, it's good to be back on the podcast.
7: Hello, I'm Rob Simpson, and I'm the host of the Directors Uncut podcast. I featured on the episode talking about Ring.
8: Hi, Gav. I hope you're well. Um, here's my thoughts on some of the films from your first series.
9: Hi, Gav. Seamus here. Hi, this is Graham Williamson from the Pop Screen
10: Podcast. Hi, I'm Gary Coleman. I'm stand-up comedian and a screenwriter, and I was a guest, uh, and I brought to you the film When Harry Met Sally. Uh, it was my favourite film as part of Series One.
0: In the very first episode, way back in April. 2021 it seems like a long time ago, I talked to Mick Hill about his favourite film which was Close Encounters of the Third Kind. A fantastic film, I have to say this is one of those science fiction films that comes along once in a lifetime. It's got everything in it. It shows how Spielberg created his films. It is his prototype for E.T. I don't think E.T. would have happened without Close Encounters. In fact, I believe E.T.'s script started its life as a sequel to Close Encounters. Um, It's a great film. I loved it. Mick loved it. So here, giving their thoughts about that film are Mick, Gary, Graham, Ian, Kev, Richard, Sarah and Seamus. Popular on this. Lots of people talking about it.
1: Spielberg comes out of the closet fighting with this movie about obsession disintegration and redemption.
10: I loved Close Encounters of the Third Kind when I was a kid. I think it was a bit scary. I was very little when I watched it. And I remember sitting, uh, watching it, I think, probably on a a dodgy VHS or a dodgy Betamax, I would have thought, being blown away by the amazing special effects on a six-inch TV set, probably in black and white. (laughs) A brilliant film, I've seen it a million times since then, loved it.
9: Close Encounters of the Third Kind. What a beautiful film. Um, it can be hard to look back on it now because it's been so influential on both cinema and, in its own strange way, real life. I mean, the alien abduction myth in modern culture hadn't really started properly. It hadn't become something that hundreds of people were reporting when Close Encounters of the Third Kind was made. And now when you look back at a lot of those supposedly real accounts... Uh, you realise that a lot of them are just retelling the story of Close Encounters of the Third Kind. They draw from the same imagery, even the aliens look the same. I have a checkered relationship with Spielberg. I find his sweet tooth is sometimes a bit alienating for me. But when he's on form, uh, he's a magician, and I think Close Encounter of the Third Kind... It is one of those films that only he could have made. And the fact that everyone has imitated it since only hammers home what a unique director he is, really. Even though his sensibility isn't entirely mine, he is someone who you should take very seriously indeed. Um, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, an
4: absolute classic. If I hadn't chosen 2001 as my favourite film... There were several other contenders. There'd be things like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Exorcist, Suspiria, Blade Runner, and certainly Close Encounters of the Third Kind would have been up there as a very serious contender. I first saw it when it was first released back in the late 1970s, and I was living on the Isle of Wight at the time. And uh, we had some pretty good cinemas there, you know, can't knock them, but a friend and I really wanted to see this on the biggest screen possible, so we took a very expensive day trip to the mainland and it was worth every penny. It was an extraordinary film. Jaws will always be my favourite Steven Spielberg film, but this comes a very, very close second. It's still just as emotional and powerful today as it was back then. In whichever version that you see, I think I prefer the final version, the director's cut, which takes um, all the best bits from the original theatrical cut, all the best bits from the special edition leaves off that stupid new ending and uh, finally arrives at the ultimate version of the film.
6: I'll have to admit that after listening to Close Encounters of the Third Kind on GAS Podcast, I actually went back and rewatched the film because they talked about so many different things that I'd clearly missed. Um, but there was some... Um, I, I did enjoy rewatching it. It was a fascinating insight into the film with an expert eye, as it were and the ending, I totally did not remember how that happened. So just mainly to say to Gav, thanks for reintroducing me to that film.
8: Uh, Okay, so Close Encounters of the Third Kind. I haven't seen it since I was a child, so I don't actually remember what happened, but I remember very vividly being really grossed out by the mashed potato um, and just really disturbed by the portrayal of a father going mad. I found that very frightening. Um, I would like to watch it again with Mary actually and do a psychoanalytic reading for the podcast. That was probably quite a lot there. Uh,
11: what can I say? It hasn't already been said. It, it's a great movie. I suppose a little bit dated now um, when you look at it and a bit, uh, a bit sentimental, uh, a bit too sentimental and, and sweet in places. But um, the main thing that I, I think when I think about it is uh, whatever happened to Richard Dreyfus.
2: I'll tell you a story. Close your eyes.
0: The second episode actually came out on my birthday of 2021, which was also my guest, Kirsty Ford's birthday, and her favourite film was The Fall. This is a bit of a different one, I suppose. Um, It's one that not many people have seen, I must admit. I had never seen it. I had never even heard of it. However... I am so glad that I have seen it now. It has got some of the most beautiful cinematography and beautiful sets and scenery that I have seen in a film for a long time. Um, The only other one of my guests who had anything to say about this was uh, Ian Robinson. Um, So here's what Ian had to say.
3: I watched this off the back of the podcast. Uh, Didn't love it, but really enjoyed it. It was visually stunning.
6: Why are you pushing me? What did you say?
0: So why are you pushing me? I haven't done anything to do you. Thanks for that, Ian. Um, I, like I say, think this is a great film. If you want to see a film that has got just be- a beautiful aesthetic to it, it just looks really, really good. And there is actually behind it all. There is a fantastic story here. It is about someone's descent, I suppose, into despair and how they come out of despair because of a child a child who sees something in them they don't see in themselves, it's definitely well worth a watch. Film number three was First Blood, and First Blood was the choice of my guest, Ravinder Kalirai. Uh, Ravinder loves First Blood, I must admit. When he first said, we're going to watch First Blood, I went, oh no, it's just that Rambo film. But First Blood isn't just that Roundup Rambo film, it's completely different First Blood is the film that started a franchise. The other films in the franchise, I suppose, destroyed the franchise to a certain extent. First Blood is a clever film. It's an interesting film. It's a film that talks about vets coming back from Vietnam and the way that they were treated by the American public. Um, Let's hear what Gary, Ian, Kev, Rob and Seamus have to say about First Blood.
10: I loved it. It's a proper Rambo film, isn't it? And that's a really clever film. I think it really does stand the test of time as a film. It's a bit of a shame they made the rest of them. to be honest. I I, I don't think they have done so well. But um, yeah, very concise, clever script writing, um, brilliant action film, hardly any dialogue at all. When there isn't any dialogue, to be honest, it's fairly unintelligible. So you could just (laughs) ignore that. But I loved it. Loved it.
3: If only it had been the first and last um every time they have revisited this it's diminished the character a bit and um you know the sort of simplistic brutality and, and injustices in the story. Um I think like Rocky and probably like the Matrix, watch the first, ignore the rest.
4: Anybody who like me came to First Blood the wrong way round watching uh, Rambo First Blood Part two first, we're in for Quite a pleasant surprise. I avoided the film after seeing uh, First Blood Part 2 because I really didn't like that. I think it was a bit of a... I don't know, just didn't like it. A bit of a stupid film, I thought. And I was pleasantly surprised when I was sort of browbeaten into watching First Blood that it actually turned out to be a much more thoughtful, much more intelligent film than the sequel allowed. Um, I think it's probably, after Death Race 2000, I think it's probably the best film that Sylvester Stallone ever made, to be honest.
7: First Blood, Rambo First Blood, is an amazing action movie that plays much more like a survivalist thing. And just how it set the stall for John Rambo as this really interesting, complicated, conflicted character and set him in a a fight with the establishment. Even now, it's pretty unique as far as action movies go, especially ones with big-named actors. I know he wasn't a name at the time, but even so... It's still unique.
11: It's a really interesting film to look at now when you see the state that the US is in at the moment and the way that he captures that. There's a, there's a self-hatred and, and self-loathing going on there and that this, the, the vet coming back and just not being accepted by Inverticom as normal uh society and then the violence and mayhem that is unleashed in the wake of that uh alienation very very interesting very good film very good film unlike uh the follow-ups
0: hey, Scott! okay in episode four i talked to richard haslett about back to the future oh what can we say about back to the future michael j fox christopher lloyd robert zemeckis directing this is a beautiful science fiction film. Um, it's one of those science fiction films that comes along every now and again that just hits the mainstream more than anything else. Uh, people don't even see it as science fiction. It's a time travel movie. It's a feel-good movie. It's got so much stuff going on. It. it spawned two fantastic sequels. And I've heard it said many times that actually the sequel, Back to the Future 2, is actually a better film than the first one. I'm not sure if it is myself. I prefer the original, but there you go. Um, Here's what Mick, Gary, Ian, Kev, Mary and Rob had to say about
1: Back to the Future. We all dream of travelling in time. Back to the Future, where our dreams come true and our nightmares begin.
10: Back to the Future is an awesome film. Uh, Absolute classic, Uh, very, very funny Um, and, and obviously spawned Rick and Morty, which is a good thing. Um, Back to the Future.
3: Um, I've grown up with all of these films and I still think they're worth a regular revisit,
4: just great movies.
5: This is an essential text for approaching the problem of the Oedipus complex in a non-intimidating way.
4: I always hold up Back to the Future as being the perfect example of the absolutely brilliantly written script. There isn't anything wrong with this film at all. It's perfectly written and To to be able to write a time travel film full of paradoxes and not get yourself tied up in knots is quite a feat. And it does it absolutely wonderfully. Superb performances all round, especially by Michael J. Fox, turned him into a star, of course. And um, followed by the two sequels, which are almost as good. In fact, I might even go so far as to say that Back to the Future Part 2 is even better. Um, It really takes the whole paradox thing to... To the extreme, I think. But this first film is just magnificent. It's just wonderful. So cleverly written, so witty, um, so well thought out. You can sit and watch it several times trying to catch them out for you know, sort of leaving plot holes in it, and there just aren't any. It's marvellous.
7: Back to the Future. Now I'm allowed to say I don't really like Back to the Future. I don't know whether it's because I watched it so much as a kid or or something else, but I'm kind of burnt out on the whole Back to the Future thing. It doesn't really do anything for me. I know I'm not allowed to say it, but I'm going to say it anyway. I found a toaster.
0: In episode five, I talked to Seamus Doherty about Badlands. Oh, my God. What a great film Badlands is. It is one film that I had not seen before the podcast. Uh, Seamus introduced me to this film, but what a film. Uh, Martin Sheen and Sissy Spacek just... um. Making a film that basically was, I suppose, a knockoff of Bonnie and Clyde, but it actually does something that that film doesn't do. It's a lovely film. It's beautifully shot. The scenery is wonderful. The lines are wonderful. Um, If you listen to the podcast that myself and Seamus did, you can hear a lot of the the stuff we talk about in there and about the one-lines that come up, the, the way the script is written. It's just a lovely film. But enough of me banging on about it. What did... My guests think, well, only four of them had something to say, and that four was Graham, Ian, Rob, and Sarah.
9: Badlands was the first episode of my favourite film I listened to because that's a film that I'm personally very fond of and a director who, well, he's had his wobbles in recent years, but I am still very devout of, as uh, in my Tempest Malik fandom. I think it's Martin Sheen's, greatest film performance um i know a lot of people love the west wing i am choosing not to listen to those people i think sissy spacek is great in it i think malik's voiceovers are always a bit more complex than just here is what the film is about i will get a character to say this but badlands is the one where that irony is most involved in the drama where it's impossible to fully appreciate what Badlands is about without understanding that that voiceover is not entirely sincere. I think it's obviously a very beautiful film, all of Malik's films are very beautiful, but there's something encouraging about the fact that it was basically put into production because someone wanted a knockoff of Bonnie and Clyde. And they got it, but they also got a lot more. It's one of those great B-movie triumphs where it's a knockoff that gets to what is profound and interesting about the subject matter much more efficiently than the still very good A-list picture that it's imitating. Badlands I'd
3: forgot I'd seen until the podcast. Probably one of Alex Cox's movie drum movies in the middle of the night. Um, I just remember it being bleak with a weird vibe, and that was pretty much my lasting memory of it.
7: I can appreciate it on an aesthetic and filmmaking level, um, but for me, though, I don't think Terence Malick is really for me. He's interesting, but I just find his work very, very hard to attached to. Him. Even this early on, when he was making, I think this is his debut. Even when he was making his debut, it didn't really do much to a like. It just didn't really do much for me. Let's not
6: overcook it.
8: Um, Badlands. I remember on the episode that I was on, we discussed that To Die For would be good to programme in a double bill alongside I, Tonya. But actually, Badlands is also a really good candidate. Um, You've got the same based on a true crime origin, same slightly psychopathic, unreliable female voice narration. Um, These are actually quite similar films. Uh, I love Badlands and I always will. Love the way Martin Sheen puts his denim jacket on. Uh, I love Sissy's new socks. Love it all. I like to be in America.
11: Okay by me in America. Everything free in America.
9: For a small fee in America. Okay. <laughs> Film number six
0: was West Side Story. Oh, what a musical. This was the original one. It was long before, well, not long before, but it was before Steven Spielberg's version of West Side Story. Hit the public um, it was Neve Utley that chose this one um, she did a lovely call with me from, from Bonnie, Scotland where she lives um, I love West Side Story, I think it is a great film it's a lovely musical, it's got so many fantastic songs and it's songs that you will know, songs that you will love um, Emma, Ian and Sarah, this is what they thought
2: West Side Story um, I think everybody loves a little bit of Romeo and Juliet and I definitely love a Broadway adaptation. Um, this is definitely classic Sondheim at his best. Um, you can tell why it was up for those 10 Oscars um, back in 1961, um, especially when you really think back to the editing of the song and dance numbers. Now, even if you're not interested in the whole song, dance, musical uh, vibe, you just need to watch it just for the aesthetic impact that this editing has it is absolutely fantastic take a watch uh,
3: West Side Story the podcast made me try again but I have to admit that I struggle with all but a very few stage show films
8: uh, West Side Story I don't watch musicals much anymore but it used to be a really big thing for me and back when i did i think this is probably my favorite or one of my favorites um i love the sharks and their girlfriends the way the men's socks and shirts match their partner's dresses um and i love rita marino and the way she acts in all of her numbers i think she's a genius and george chakiris george chakiris is really sexy um the jets are really boring in comparison
11: Because it's the only bang you're ever going to get, sweetheart.
8: In
0: episode seven, I talked to Emma Hazlitt about The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, which is probably one of the longest titles that I think I've got. Uh, It's a great film. This is a film about drag queens in the Australian outback. I don't think there's much more you can say than that. Um, It's about a lot of other things, but it's one of those films that is just so worth a watch and... And I think if you listen to the podcast and hear what Emma has to say with it, you will want to go and see it. Um, Emma is one of the few people that has said something about the film that she chose. So here is Emma talking about her choice, The Adventures of Priscilla at Queen of the Desert. And she's also joined by Ian, Richard and
11: Sarah.
2: Priscilla, Queen in the Desert, my absolute all-time fave. Um, Stephen Elliott's cult 1994 movie following two drag queens and a transgender woman as they travel across the Australian outback over to Alice Springs to perform at a hotel casino. Um, this offers one of the most amazing storylines uh, of inclusivity uh, for the LGBT community, the most fantastic uh, scenery um, as they travel across the outback Um, You can really tell why it won the best Oscar for costume. Um, These lovely landscape shots on there, outrageous colour palette for these fantastic drag outfits and a lovely tale of friendship and overcoming adversity told throughout. Please take a watch. Uh,
3: The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Another great film. I remember it being a hard watch. I do want to revisit this in the post-RuPaul's Drag Race world that we live in now.
6: I've had the unfortunate joy of having to watch Priscilla, the Queen of the Desert, more times than a straight man should have had to watch Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, as my wife is a massive fan, and it is in fact Emma that spoke to you on your podcast. Um, That said, it is actually quite an enjoyable film. Uh, The the story really does delve into the characters, and they've got three very separate storylines that intertwine and cause conflict, and also... um, union between the three queens so yeah it's worth seeing
8: um the adventures of priscilla queen of the desert i saw this for the first time in a cinema in paris a few years ago and i was kind of disappointed uh it seemed really dated and a bit vulgar oh no it wasn't for me sadly maybe it's just not my kind of humor
4: you got red on you
0: sure it was the first uh pseudo horror film Shaun of the dead Chosen by my old friend, Ian Robinson. Um, Shaun of the Dead is not a horror film, but it has so many horror film tropes in it, and actually, it's quite scary. It has to be said. It's a comedy, though, or it's a rom-com with zombies, which is how it was um, sold. It obviously riffs on Dawn of the Dead. We'll come back to that in a few episodes' time. Uh, lots of people like Shaun of the Dead. Here are some talk, uh, some comments from Emma, Gary, Graham, Kevin... Rob, Sarah, and Sheamus.
2: Um, first of the infamous Cornetto trilogies, and one of the most successful contemporary British comedies, it offers a perfectly postmodern genre hybridity. Um, particularly impressive for those people that are really interested in the zombie uh, genre. Lots of intertextual references going on there. Um, and for those of you that, like myself, maybe not really interested in the zombie side of it all, nice little rom com element running through there as well to keep you uh, entertained throughout.
10: I absolutely love Shaun of the Dead, brilliant script, quite rightly started the career of um, uh, Simon Pegg and uh, whatever he's called, Nick Frost, Um, and obviously the infamous director, Edgar Wright. Um, Yeah, brilliant film, and and best of all of the uh, Cornetto bunch, brilliant film. Shaun
9: of the Dead, Shaun of the Dead is a, a film that I love the most, well, actually, I don't know, man. Do I love Shaun of the Dead more than other Edgar Wright films? I love Baby Driver a lot, but that's its own thing. Whereas if you're looking for Edgar Wright's Simon Pegg and Nick Frost's sensibility at its earliest, at the time when they'd sort of just stopped dreaming about being in films and started actually being in films, that's the one you'd go for. Like all Edgar Wright films, it is such a clever structure and it is animated in great part by Simon Pegg's love of romantic comedy, a genre which I'm finding more and more fascinating as it becomes more and more unfashionable. I think the fact that no one these days can get it right makes the older examples of it that, you know, nail it uh, uh, more and more interesting to me.
4: A very clever film, this one. Um, obviously, it starts with the panning title and just keeps on going. Edgar Wright and the rest of the team, they obviously knew their zombie films inside out, particularly the work of uh, George Romero. It's full of in-jokes, absolutely packed to the rafters with in-jokes. Everything from the, um, we're coming to get you Barbara, to the join us joke. I mean, there's just so much stuff going on here for horror fans and particularly fans of zombie films. And... um Again, it's one of those films that just sort of makes perfect sense when you're watching it. It's absolutely ludicrous. The whole notion of the film is absolutely ludicrous. And it's so beautifully written that you buy into all of it. And at the end, it's, it even turns out to be very, very moving. And um, it, it was the first of the Cornetto trilogy. And uh, it's, it remains the best. It's followed by um, Hot Fuzz, which is great fun. And uh, World's End, which is not quite so much fun. But this one is definitely head and shoulders above all of the others.
7: Shaun of the Dead is when the whole world's basically sick of zombie movies, and they've got every reason to be. Shaun of the Dead is the one exception to the rule, really, because it's effectively a golden era British sitcom that just happens to have a feature-length episode with zombies in it. And the fun and the invention as well as being very, very aware of, of zombie cinema, it just combines to create a movie which I think is just effortlessly effortlessly rewatchable the one bit I don't like it goes to why I don't really like zombie movies is a a bit I think it recalls Day of the Dead where Dylan Moran well his fate it just seems like that. Is it? uh no I'm a horror fan for just some go takes it too far nonetheless though I think Shaun of the Dead is just really really good fun
8: Shaun of the Dead, a classic. I love Edgar Wright generally and I think for most people Shaun of the Dead is one of those comfort films you can watch again and again. The only thing for me is that the actress that plays Shaun's girlfriend was once in this ITV drama called Secret Smile with David Tennant and it was about domestic violence. Does anyone else remember this because it just kind of came on tv one day and absolutely ruined all of those actors for me? Like, that is the thing about British actors. They've always done something really sick in a crime drama once that you can never really quite forget.
11: Shaun of the Dead, what an absolutely brilliant movie. As a diehard zombie fan, uh, this movie for me has got everything. It's got excellent zombies, really, really funny, uh, very good set pieces, great catchphrases, you've got red on you, etc. Uh et are really, really good. And a film you can just watch over and over again.
1: We're on a mission from God. Show number nine.
0: Show number nine was The Blues Brothers with Carl Delahaye. Uh, Carl loves The Blues Brothers. He explains so well in his uh, talk about how he loves it and why he loves it. Um, I do too. There's nothing better than this. It's got... Everything you'd want from a film, to be honest. It's got some fantastic music, it's got a great story, it's got some cracking comedy, it's got the best cameos going. Uh, it's Yeah, it's it's a, a wonderful film. Yes, it's a bit slow, um, but that's indicative of the time that it came out. Here's Mick, Gary, Graham, Ian, Kevin, Richard and Seamus to tell you what they're for.
1: Everybody needs somebody to love. Watch these two toe-tapping ne'er-do-wells On a mission from God, as they speed across Chicago in search of freedom, it certainly
10: makes you think. Bruce Brothers love the film, Um, and my kids, my my (laughs) neighbour introduced our children to it at a very young age, really inappropriately young age, Um, but they loved it. Um, I'm not so sure it actually stands up the test of time, apart from the musical element of it. um, I'm not sure the performances stand up the test of time. It's the Blues Brothers, so you've got to love it, haven't you? Really, Blues Brothers is an interesting
11: one,
9: I think, because of when I came to uh, to start watching films. I find a lot of those consensus 80s classics a bit hard to warm to, a lot of them you kind of have to grow up with. Uh, but John Landis's films I find very interesting. Again, because they overturn conventional wisdom in so many ways. They're big, expensive, vast, kind of almost bloated comedies. I mean, The Blues Brothers is the ultimate example of a comedy that has no light touch whatsoever. It throws everything in the kitchen sink at a very thin story, and yet somehow it works. I think... Largely because it has John Belushi. No disrespect to Dan Aykroyd, because Dan Aykroyd pulled off a few tricks like this back in the 80s and 90s. But Belushi's art form was excess. Belushi's life was excess. But you get the sense in the Blues Brothers that all of this chaos and all of this music and all of these weird inside jokes aren't happening because of a desperation to please. It's not flop sweat, it's part of his actual comic sensibility that is just coming through in a really natural and unforced way. I should revisit the Blues Brothers. It's been a long time since I saw it. There's a pop screen episode in that, I think.
3: Blues Brothers love this film, love the music um, and all the characters in it and the fact it absolutely makes no sense whatsoever. I remember watching it on the morning of my wedding that sort of passed the time for some reason.
4: The Blues Brothers is one of those films I kind of feel that I really should like more than I actually do. I get why it's a cult film. And there's an awful lot in here that I, it ticks a lot of boxes for me. The music, the performers, the story. It just doesn't quite... It's one of those films that when I'm watching it, I really, really, really like it. I'm really enjoying it when I'm watching it. And then if it turns up on a streaming service or turns up on TV or I'm browsing my Blu-ray shelves... I skip over it. I just think, I don't really fancy the Blues Brothers today. And I don't know why, it's just one of those really weird films that whenever it's made available to me, I tend not to watch it. Though when I am watching it, I enjoy it well enough. It's just, uh, it's a good film but it doesn't really float my boat like some of the others do.
6: I'll admit it's been a long while since I've seen the Blues Brothers. But the one thing I can say is that I really enjoyed the car chase. It was, apparently at the time, the largest and most expensive um, car crash involving the most amount of vehicles ever filmed in cinematic history and um, I think there was one point where I watched the film just to watch the car chase again
11: Blues Brothers who cares about a plot what a fantastic mess of a movie The worth watching just for the cameos alone from some of the greats of R&B and Music in general, Aretha Franklin, Cab Calloway, etc absolutely fantastic movie. I love John Landis's work uh, I really enjoyed uh, Animal House as well one of the one of the first films that I, uh, I went to see that really made me laugh out loud because it's my movie my movie my superhero movie it's all about me yeah, it's all about
0: me Show number 10 was a little bit of an oddity I suppose, and this was just because my son Max really, really wanted to do one of the episodes, so we talked about Teen Titans go to the movies. Um, It's a great film. Do you know what? It's one of those films that does something to the DC franchise that I don't think any other film is brave enough to do. It shows that DC can really just take the mick out of themselves, and they're very good at it. Uh, In possibly the same way as the new... Super Pets film looks like it's going to take the mick out of this DC franchise. It's a great film. I love Teen Titans. I love the series. I love this film. It's a musical as well so if you like musicals just go for it. It's actually got some cracking songs in it. It really has. Um, Unfortunately of my guests the only one that had anything to say about it was uh, Ian so here's what Ian had to say.
3: Teen Titans go to the movies I haven't seen I have to be honest Um, but following the podcast I definitely wouldn't turn it off if I came across it.
1: I love you. In my dreams, I love you.
0: Show number 11. Talked about Brazil. Terry Gilliam's Brazil. Oh, man. I don't know what else I can say about Brazil that I didn't say already during the podcast. And Brazil is a beautiful, beautiful film. Terry Gilliam is a wonderful director. The things he puts on screen are just fantastic. And Brazil is just one of those films that you can just watch and watch and watch as I think is shown by the amount of people that have got something to say about this, um, which will be Mick, Gary, Graham, Ian, Kevin, Mary, Rob, and Seamus. That's what they had to say.
1: Has anybody seen Lowry? This dystopian film from 1985 was a career highlight for everyone involved. Never has a film felt more relevant... Than now.
10: Oh my word, Brazil. I absolutely love Brazil. Terry Gilliam, um, their most amazing film. And it's got such a tragic ending, absolutely heartbreaking the ending. Um, But an amazing film, so powerful. Got to watch it. Uh, Brazil
9: is a movie that I love very very much and maybe if Mulholland Drive wasn't here it would be the film on this list that I adored the most. Uh, I was a huge fan of Terry Gilliam growing up. Again, it's that subversive sensibility that really appealed to me as a teenager. I was also aware of the mythos surrounding Brazil. Before I saw it, I was aware that it was this huge, deeply complex, insanely ambitious film that Gilliam had to fight and fight and fight to get through the studio. And I think one of the things that... Means that the film is not swamped by that mythos is the fact that that struggle reflects the film's story so well that Gilliam really became Sam Lowry, struggling against the uncaring bureaucracy of Universal Studios to get this made. There's something very romantic about that in the same way that it's very romantic that Gilliam went through hell trying to get a film about Don Quixote made. Um, I think it's it's a great film, it's as visually splendid as anything Gilliam ever did, which puts it in the top rank of most visually striking films ever made, because he's always good at that, but it also has two of the, the performances... ...that most affect me in all of his work... ...I love Jonathan Price as Sam Lowry... ...I think that's one of the great heroes of our time right there... ...and I think it also has one of the great villains of our time... ...in the form of Jack Lint played by Michael Palin... ...there's a wonderful story Gilliam tells... ...that goes right to the heart of why I love his movies... Um, ...which is that he was once talking to George Lucas... ...about villainy in films... And he realized to his horror that George Lucas actually believes Darth Vader is the most evil character that anyone can possibly imagine. And Gilliam's point, which I think is a very true point, is that real evil isn't the guy in black who stomps around telling everyone how evil he is. Real evil is like Jack Lint, a nice, friendly family man who everyone gets on with, whose job is torturing people to death for the state, and he sees no contradiction in that. He's completely comfortable in his own evil, and that makes him very frightening indeed
3: um i love this and gilliam in general and his sort of aged dystopian future vision um there's so much to process in this film definitely worth a watch love it
4: i think any film made by terry gilliam should be somebody's favorite film of all time even these lesser ones are head and shoulders above anything that anybody else makes the man's a genius and has been ever since his early days doing those animations for Monty Python. An absolutely superb catalogue of films. And like I say, even the lesser ones, and there are lesser ones, even there's sort a of really intelligent, really clever, really funny, witty films. But Brazil is the absolute peak. Came out at just the right time when everybody was obsessed with 1984 and um, parodies it beautifully. And it's one of those films, like like a lot of Gilliam films, you can't really pin it down to what its genre actually is. It's science fiction, it's comedy, it's satire, it's horror to a certain extent. But there's lots of things going on in it and it never really settles down to be one thing or the other. It's um it's that good. It's that clever. And you have to really admire Gilliam for his persistence in actually getting his cut through against all the odds. Go and read The Battle of Brazil, which is an incredible book which um, tells you all the backstory of of the troubles that he had in getting this film to the screen, and then just go and thank Gilliam every single day for the fact that he did it.
5: This film teaches us that materiality can always be colonised and exploited by illegitimate authoritarian forces, but our imagination, that can be ours forever. Our capacity to dream belongs to us. Villains can't touch it if we don't let them.
7: Brazil... As far as... It's weird, really. I can appreciate it, I enjoy it, but it's one of these movies where I, I think it's one of Terry Gilliam's most interesting, but I also think it was one of the Terry Gilliam movies where he doesn't express his wild imagination as much as he does in other movies. It's got a lot of say and all of it's fine it's, as far as an adaptation of 1984 goes, and it's probably the best adaptation of 1984, but... I don't think it has that zest that you know, a usual Terry Gilliam film has. I mean my favourite honestly is Time Bandits of the movies that he did.
11: Absolutely fantastic movie. I can remember the first time watching it and being absolutely blown away. All the performances are amazing. As with every Terry Gilliam movie, the sets, the the scale is just epic and surreal and off-the-wall. The Um, the sequence where he dreams that he's an angel is just absolutely amazing. Highly, highly recommended movie.
10: Take your sticking
6: paws off me, you damn dirty ape!
11: Show number 12 was the start
0: of my two-parters. Well, I say two-parters. It was an episode where I talked to James and Matt from the journey through sci-fi. Planet of the Apes was James's choice. Um, obviously, with two people who host a podcast about science fiction films, it was bound to be a science fiction film. Uh, planet of the Apes is a fantastic film. Uh, just Charlton Heston, absolutely chewing the scenery in this one, but, you know, it's a brilliant film. Uh, it tells of space travel somewhere off into space. They end up on a planet that is, as the title of the film suggests, ruled by apes um, and that twist ending is just an absolute glory uh, here's Gary Ian Kevin Mick Richard and Seamus who all have something to say about
1: Planet of the Apes
10: oh wow oh my gosh yes the original one brilliant film absolutely fantastic film don't watch the new ones just watch Charlton Heston he who is a bit dodgy to be honest and his syrup is a bit dodgy but the film wow amazing I'm not sure if stamp. I'm not sure because it's been so kind of parodied at the end. I'm not sure the ending has that effect it used to have. But while I was a kid, watching the, that, that film, it just blew my mind away. My wife can't watch
3: these films because of the ape makeup. So I don't see them very often. But I do love them. And this one is absolutely groundbreaking. And I really love the podcast and the, the fresh take to it. So it was a really interesting conversation.
4: There was something in the air of the late 60s, like 1968, 67, 68. You'd got films like um, Quite a Mass in the Pit. Of course, my beloved 2001 and Planet of the Apes, which were all to a certain degree about evolution, in one way or another. And 2001, of course, is the best. Quite a masterpiece is an absolute masterpiece too. And so is Planet of the Apes. It's a fantastically clever film, really satirical, very funny. I think people don't really give it credit for just how funny it is sometimes. Um, marvelous performance by Charlton Heston. Um, great performances all round. In fact. Spawned a whole series of films, spawned a whole series of remakes eventually. But yeah, this is the the best out of all of them. The, the, the recent series, the recent trilogy of films have been fantastic. The less said about the Tim Burton remake, the better. And the original remakes are all very variable in quality. But this original is still an absolute masterpiece. I just never tire of watching this film. Add this one to the list of films that would have made it to my favourite film had 2001 not existed.
1: A gun-toting Charlton Heston set sail from a planet of brainless chumps, only to find himself marooned on a planet of brainless chimps.
6: When I saw Planet of the Apes on Gav's list of podcasts, I was slightly worried it might be the Mike Wahlberg version. Um, Luckily, it wasn't. And it was the original Charlton Heston version. Um, One of the greatest films um, ever made, in my opinion. And the twist at the end is uh, amazing and fantastic. I remember m- when I first saw the twist being um, like just shocked by it, it just blew my mind. And it's probably the first twist ending I ever saw in a film on screen. In your podcast, Gav, you mentioned how the uh, the, the film title itself is a bit of a spoiler, which the people making the film didn't seem to realize because it's 30 minutes until you actually see your first ape and when the ape is revealed on the horse while they're hunting humans, there's just the whole dramatic sound. Uh, the the way it's filmed is just all very, like, meant to instill shock in the audience. It's like, I'm sorry, but if you hadn't seen the title and looked at the poster or watched any of the trailers, I, I don't think you would have been shocked to see that there was an ape riding a horse.
11: Again, what, what, what can you say that hasn't already been said about Planned of the Apes, the... Like everybody, I'm sure. I remember the first time I watched it and the twist ending, and uh, as he comes along the beach and sees the Statue of Liberty, just absolutely fantastic, uh, fantastic sequence. And the movie itself, the lead up to, <laughs> the lead up to it was was very good as well. Great, great idea, well executed.
0: Episode thirteen was the second of my two parter with. Um matt and james from the journey through sci-fi and of course this time was matt and matt was talking about wally wally pixar animations silent movie about robots it's well i say silent it's not quite fully silent there is some words in it but it is a mainly silent film most of the comedy most of the story comes from the silent movie parts of it which are the parts between little robot wally and eve um Matt loves this film for lots of different reasons, and I think it's probably worthwhile you listening to the podcast to hear why Matt loves it. Um, but so do Gary, Graham, Ian, Rob, and Mick, and this is what they had to say.
10: Wally, Wally. Um, brilliant movie. Almost kind of a silent movie, really, isn't it? It's, um, I, mean, I just sat and watched that film and cried like a baby through it. It's such a beautiful, again, very, very bittersweet, tragic comedy um, gorgeous movie, go watch it, yeah.
9: Wally. Wally is a film I'm uh, a great admirer of. It came out in the middle of that run where Pixar were just invincible. It's maybe not my favourite product of that run they had. I think I would rate up and maybe The Incredibles higher. But in a strange way, it's the riskiest one. It's a story with almost no dialogue where the characters who speak the least and who were the least facially expressive are the ones you're meant to empathise with. And when it goes into the human realm, it becomes even more daring. It mixes in real-life footage with animated characters in a way that normally is something you do if you're in a sort of who framed roger rabbit situation if there's a big textual reason why you have this break in the film's reality but what just does it because it's fun and i think the whole film has such a light creative spirit that it gets away with things that would be absolutely terminal terminal in any other animated film, I mean, how many cute films for kids have you seen where the hero's best friend is a cockroach? Most studios would insist on something at least passingly cute. Wally
3: was a really lovely movie. Watched that many times with my son. Um, I remember my dad took him to the cinema to see it and hated it. At least enough times to mention it like several times over.
7: How can anybody not like Wally? Uh, for me, it's probably top tier Pixar just because it's effectively a silent movie about robots finding love and also happens to have really really wholesome values whilst having those wholesome values also has i mean we've all seen it in the news like some new invention and thinking oh wow wally's true <laughs> while he's a soothsayer. all these little things it's predicting are coming true in in real life But, yeah, it's just just such an effortlessly charming and wonderful little movie, Wally. More tear-jerking
1: than Bambi, more prescient than 1984, this fantastic animated cartoon, Wool E, shows our future so bleakly and so truly.
11: Knock, knock. Who's there? It's the police, ma'am. Your son's been hit by a drunk driver. He's dead. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Film 14 was Joker, which was chosen by uh, Mary Wilde. This is the Todd Phillips Joker starring Joaquin Phoenix. Uh, I have so many thoughts on this. I am a huge DC fan, as I think it comes across within the the interview I had with Mary. So is Mary. We are both massive fans of Batman. Um there is something about Joaquin Phoenix's Joker in this that is just amazing. It's a very different Joker than we've seen before. Um, when the film was first muted as coming out, I did wonder whether we needed another Joker. We just had Heath Ledger's Dark Knight Joker and Jared Leto playing the Joker in Suicide Squad. And obviously on the back of Jack Nicholson's show-stealing performance as Joker in the 1989 Batman, did we need another Joker? Truthfully... Probably not, but hey, the one we got was absolutely fantastic and one of the best Jokers that I have seen on film for an awful long time. Um, I'm still undecided whether or not Joaquin Phoenix is my favourite Joker or not. I think Heath Ledger's performance was amazing, as was Jack Nicholson's. And to be honest, Mark Hamill's Joker in the animated series is still one of my favourite, but on film, this version of the Joker is absolutely amazing. Here are some thoughts from Gary, Ian, Mick. Rob, Sarah, and Seamus.
10: Joker. I, yes. (laughs) So, Joker, I absolutely love Joker. Um, I wasn't convinced when I went there. I thought I wasn't going to enjoy it, and I was totally blown away by it. It's probably the best of all of the DC Marvel um, uh, sort of spin-off movies by a mile, absolute mile. And the performance of uh, George and Phoenix is just incredible. Um, Yeah, and just as a standalone piece of work about the sort of descent of a man's mind, it's just absolutely brilliant.
3: The Joker, that's a tough watch worth doing. I think it stands alone and lives outside the franchise, but doesn't take anything away from it in the Joker legacy. I think the, the discussion in the podcast was excellent. I felt like I learned loads from that.
1: Joker, or how I fell in love with a clown face psychopath. Robert Pattinson, take note. This is the bar.
8: Um, if you want to know my views on Joker, why not listen to our review of it on Projections Podcast?
7: Uh, Joker. I hate Joker. Uh, I'm going to be perfectly honest. Um, s- essentially, the reason for that is the director at the time says he's not, he can't make comedy movies. Because everybody's chasing wokeness, everything's too hyper woke. And for him to come out of a movie which is so politically backwards and has so many just downright, downright bad things and wrong things to say as part of its whole picture, I think is really, really weak. And if you use sort of Batman mythology, there's this, I think it was, um, what was the killing joke? Where in that they say, I just, the Joker says the Batman, I just want you to basically see what it's like for us. I just want you to have one really, really bad day, because that's what it takes to get us like this. You know, at the bottom runs of society, fighting, clawing for air. And for this, the day, hypothetical day, to be the day that's depicted in Joker, just made me angry, honestly.
11: Uh, one of the standout movies for me of uh, recent years, and uh, Joaquin Phoenix, his performance was absolutely standout as well. He gave a whole new twist on, you know, what is a character who's been portrayed so many times before. He really made it uh, his own, a it, it beautifully crafted film, again, highly recommended. I'm sorry,
7: Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that.
11: Show number 15.
0: Uh, I took a bit of a break after show number 14 and it took me a little while to get number 15 out, but show number 15 was 2001 A Space Odyssey, and it was Kevin Lyons' choice. Kevin Lyons from the Encyclopedia of Fantastic Film and Television. 2001 A Space Odyssey is an absolutely amazing film. Um, I... Can't say much more about it. It's three films in one. They're three very different films, but they all have a linking arc of this monolith and the evolution of man. What other film can take you from the dawn of time and apes through to a far distant future where man actually evolves to something completely new in the star child? This is what Mick, Gary, Graham, Ian, Mary and Seamus had to say about it.
1: 2001, A Space Odyssey. The most beautiful visual segue in the history of cinema.
10: 2001, Space Odyssey is widely regarded as one of the best movies in the world. It's absolute pants. Um, it's absolute <laughs> rubbish. What was he on? It's, it's And the special effects, yeah, okay, well done. But no, it's nonsense. Absolute nonsense. Don't bother. Way too, it's a long film, way too long. It could be cut down to a 10 minute bit of special effects and that's it. Rubbish. Mel Brooks did the best version of it whatever his film was, or for film.
9: I'm also a huge fan of 2001, A Space Odyssey. That was big for me because, I mean, when you talk about getting your money's worth out of a film, a movie that takes you from the dawn of mankind to the next step in human evolution on Jupiter Um it, it's hard to really say you're being shortchanged by that. That's a lot to cover. And it does so with such cinematic technique, that famous cut of the bone being thrown into the air, which cuts to uh, the, the space vehicle. You know, it's thousands of years in one edit, and that's something that you just can't do in another medium. It's something like total cinema, even though I know Arthur C. Clarke famously did it in another medium. Kubrick is able to find ways of expressing these ideas in ways that are purely cinematic and make you aware of what a a unique medium and how much potential there is in this.
3: 2001 Space Odyssey, I've been telling my son to watch this for years and I think everyone should watch this at least once.
5: Fun fact, images from this film dominated my mind while I was tripping out on general anaesthetic during minor surgery at St Thomas's Hospital a few years ago. The Stargate sequence is one of the most glorious cinematic moments of all time. Such a banger.
11: It's another one of those movies that I remember vividly going to the cinema and seeing it, not being quite sure what the hell was going on, but being completely mesmerised and blown away by it all. Um, Kubrick, I don't think he's ever made um, a bad film. Yes, they're all a bit flawed and, and uh, difficult sometimes, but um, this movie is just amazing.
9: You're not anybody in America unless you're on TV.
11: Show number 16,
0: I was joined by Sarah Cleaver um, for her film, which is To Die For. Sarah is the other host of the Projections Podcast, I forgot to mention earlier, Mary Wilde is from the Projections Podcast as well. and um, they hosted together. To Die For is a film that I had never seen, which was a real shock because it's uh, quite a big film. There uh, are some huge stars in it. You know, you've got Nicole Kidman, you've got Matt Dillon, you've got Wacking Phoenix. This is a big film. Um, it's it's a really amazing film. It's Written in a very clever way, it's got a very clever style to it, it's, it seems like it's documentary, but it's not quite documentary, it's kind of found footage, but not really. Um, yeah, it's a, it's one to definitely watch and have a look at and see what's it's like. Um, Ian and Mary had their thoughts on it, and here are those thoughts. Looked for this, sounded interesting,
3: not easy to find, must try harder. Nicole
5: Kidman and Joaquin Phoenix together in a film. What's not to love? This is my favorite by Gus Van Sant. And if you really stop to think about it, it's disturbing as
0: fuck.
1: When there's no more room in hell, the dead will walk here.
0: Episode 17 was the start of my Halloween episodes for 2021. And I did Dawn of the Dead with actor, director, writer Chris Morrissey. Um, Dawn of the Dead, George A. Romero, uh, his. Zombie work about commercialism and, yeah, it's a fantastic film. You you can't deny it. It's a wonderful um, take on the zombie franchise. It's something that Romero did so well. You know, he invented or reinvented the zombie for the modern-day public. I think it's a very important film in horror. Um, Anyway, Gary, Graham, Ian, Kev, Richard and Rob have something to say about it.
10: Absolutely brilliant film. It's uh, again, I I watched it as a student thinking I was going to watch some really sort of shonky, low budget, rubbish film. It is really shonky, it is low budget, but it's brilliant. It's a fantastic film, really, really stands up as a a bit of filmmaking. Go watch it.
9: I was quite late getting into films as a kid. uh, And one of the things that really hooked me early on was Dawn of the Dead, which I thought was both more transgressive and more dangerous and obviously more gory than anything i would seen in my life. But it also has this major anti-consumerist, I mean, you can't even call it subtext, can you? It's right there. It felt subversive and satirical in a way that the safer, more mainstream films that I'd watched as a kid couldn't really compete with. I think when you come back to it now, you're also struck by how epic it is. It's far longer and far broader in scope than a horror film should be. Uh, And yet not only does it work, it also still has this claustrophobic siege quality, which you'd think would be completely destroyed by that kind of expansion. It's a film that just overturns the conventional wisdom about how to make a horror film at every turn this is the
3: one with the winchester right no i, I love this um, i still need to check if the one that you discussed in the podcast the full version is the one is one i've seen um but i definitely wouldn't let a minor watch it
4: now i think it's very possible that um i'm the only horror fan in the world that isn't quite entirely sold on dawn of the dead I love George Romero's films. I love Night of the Living Dead. I love Day of the Dead. I don't love the other dead films quite so much, but Dawn of the Dead, I don't know. It never quite blew me away like it does so many other fans. Um, I I did actually say this on the Evolution of Horror podcast, and I'm amazed I'm still here, to be honest. I could hear them building the Wicker Man outside, because it is really sort of the... You know, it, it, it's like almost biblical proportions to some horror fans. I just find it's a bit of a one-note film. It's got this one really good idea that zombies equals consumerism. And Romero sort of beats us over the head with it for two hours. And I kind of wanted a little bit more than that. It's not as lean as Night of the Living Dead, and it's not as clever and as deep as Day of the Dead. It's still a good film, don't get me wrong. I don't dislike it, but it's it's... I don't know. It just doesn't quite connect with me. I should go and hide now because that wicker man will come back won't it, and I'll be burned alive in that for, for my, my blasphemy a second time around.
6: I'll have to confess that despite being a big zombie fan, I didn't see Dawn of the Dead until after I had seen Shaun of the Dead and the only reason I watched it afterwards was for context to Shaun of the Dead so that I could then re-watch that and figure out any of the hidden easter eggs and things like that on it, but still found it a very enjoyable film and a worthy start to the zombie zombie film franchise world
7: um i've got complicated feelings about dawn of the dead it's one of these movies where i watched it when i was young it was one of the earliest horror movies i saw but at the same time i think if i watched it again now i don't know whether it'd hold up because once upon a time it's it's subtext um about consumerism was really really Cutting edge, interesting. The gore effects, even though the zombies are grey for some reason, was really, really cool. But if you, it's one of these things, it's perfect encapsulation of its time, but outside of its time, I don't really know whether it'll hold up. But it's an icon of zombie cinema, of that there can absolutely be no doubt. There are certain rules that one must abide by in order to successfully survive a horror movie.
0: Episode number 18, um was the second of my Halloween episodes, and this time I was joined by Mike Munzer of the Evolution of Horror podcast. Mike's favourite film is Scream, and I know Mike's talked awful about Scream on lots of other podcasts over the last few months as Scream got its anniversary and obviously got its sequel, final sequel so far, in um, Scream 2022, as they're calling it now. It doesn't have the five on. I wish they'd kept that five cream at the start of it, but there you go. Um, It's a great film Uh, It is the film that brought the slasher back I suppose During the 80s 90s We got a glut of slashers That just got worse and worse as their franchises went on Scream took that and went all meta with it And it's that meta thing That I think makes it a great film Ian, Kevin, Richard, Rob and Sarah This is what they said about it
3: Um, Scream I would say is a good fun slasher Wes Craven always brings something fresh and worth watching to his to his franchises.
4: Just when you thought you'd finally seen the, the back of all those slasher films that proliferated in the early 1980s, and you have to remember, I'm quite old. I was there at the time. I was watching these films week in, week out. And my God, they were dull and repetitive. But just when you see, thought you'd seen the back of them, along came Wes Craven with Scream, which is an absolutely brilliant reconstruction deconstruction however what you want to look at look at it of the genre very clever very very witty it it's written and made by people who absolutely understand what the slasher film was all about and I I think it's been slightly cheapened again by some of its sequels. Some of them are okay. They're not quite so good, but this first one is so, so clever. It's a film that I think non horror fans can enjoy, but horror fans are going to absolutely just buy into in a big way. We recognize most of the characters on the screen because we've seen them so many times and some of them are even us. And, uh, yeah, what can I say, fantastic film, really good, really reinvigorated the, um, the slasher film for good or for ill, and uh, remains one of the best of the kind.
6: Scream is an interesting um, in addition to a horror movie film night. If you watch Scream first, you're basically guaranteed to know how every other film you're going to watch is going to end because it, it's the template for every horror film. They they basically explain the plot of every other film out there and what's going to happen. And, and it, it's more of a learning documentary than a horror film, but it's still a very good watch.
7: Uh, I, I say that I'm just having bad opinions about all of these movies, but my issue with Scream is I don't like slashes, and... I came of horror age when that was hitting cinema screens and honestly it's kind of behind the reason why it took me so long to fall in love with horror because you know slashes being a thing and that basically gave them a second life. I don't think there's anything wrong with it in particular it's just I can't really separate it from that post wave post screen wave of slashes which were just lowest common denominator nonsense.
8: Ah, Scream is probably one of my favourite horror films. I was a bit young for it the first time around, but when I started getting into horror in my early 20s, I watched it and just loved it. Uh, it's always one that I come back to. Again, it's kind of a comfort film. Um, it just feels like quite an event with all of those stars. I don't know if maybe just stars don't feel as starry now. Um, but yeah, something about, you know, Courtney Cox, David Arquette, Neve Campbell, Drew Barrymore, just, yeah, I'd love to sort of, see a horror movie again with that kind of like really exciting cast.
1: Is that men and women can't
9: be friends because the sex part always gets in the way.
1: Let's kind of skip over episode
0: 19 now. Episode 19 was uh, the final Halloween special. Uh, I recorded it with Mike once uh, again and we just talked about a load of horror films. It's kind of like this episode, but just two people talking about a load of horror films. To be honest, I'm not going to go through them again. If you want to listen to that one, go back to it. Uh, It certainly is a Fantastic film list for a Halloween evening. If you want some good horror films, that's where to go. So let's skip to episode 20, where I talked about when Harry met Sally with Gary Coleman. Um when Harry met Sally is just the perfect rom com. And that's all I'm gonna say about it. Graham, Ian, Mary, Sarah, Seamus, and Mick had this to say about
9: it. And uh, that is a film that overcomes the un- current unfashionability of its genre so well because it is so sharply written its two leads are so likeable that even if you don't have personal experience with that kind of dilemma of, of sort of someone who's a friend who might be a lover it it, it gets across the worldview of its characters and the world they live in so well um and It's very easy to see why Meg Ryan just became the queen of this genre after it was released. When Harry Met Sally? I have seen that, but
3: apart from the iconic scene, I really have no recollection of it whatsoever.
5: A fun comedy to escape into. Maybe a little too cute for my tastes, but I'll have whatever Meg Ryan is having.
8: So When Harry Met Sally, I guess I think it's kind of a perfect film, but I don't have much of depth to say beyond that. I'm a big fan of Meg Ryan, though. Um, I screened in the cart last year for Zodiac Film Club uh, and I realised a lot of pe- young people who come to my screenings I'm a hit with Generation Z um, I realised a lot of them don't know who she is and I think that's crazy and I really hope she has a comeback one day
11: No, I'm not usually a fan of rom-coms but uh, I will make an exception for uh, this movie Great performances And a really, really well-written, I liked the way it was structured and set up with them meeting over the years. And, of course, the scene in the restaurant um, is uh, everybody's favourite.
1: I'll have what she's having. When a friendship turns into love, you can't wait for the rest of your life to start
8: I where you were going.
2: Mulholland
0: Drive. In episode 21, I talked to Graham Williamson of the Geek Show and of the Pop Screen Podcast. And I always have problems saying that. The Pop Screen Podcast. There you go. Um, about his favourite film, which is Mulholland Drive, which bizarrely has got nothing to do with pop. Uh, David Lynch film, Um, I said this in the podcast episode, I have a problem with David Lynch. I don't know what my problem is with David Lynch. I think he is an absolute genius when it comes to making films, but I cannot ever walk away from one of his films and go, I want to watch that again. It's never happened to me. I don't think it ever will. Um, I hope one day that he will surprise me, and I will actually go, yes, I love that, well done. But so far, I watch them and I go, yes, I see why you love it, but I don't. Um, anyway, Ian, Kevin, Mary, Rob and Sarah have this to say about it. I rush towards lo- uh,
3: Lynch films like A Moth to a Flame and probably with as much comprehension as A Moth does as well. I really need to rewatch this one. It's been too long since I've seen it, but I do remember enjoying
4: it. It's not, I think, my favourite David Lynch film. That's either going to be The Elephant Man or Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me, which I think is hugely underrated. But it is a superb film, and definitely, he's his last really great film, *Inland Empire*. I I don't rate it at all. Astonishingly, I'm recording this in uh, February 2022, which means that *Mulholland Drive* is now 11 years old, and it certainly doesn't feel like it. It's um, I think it's probably his most disturbing film. I think even more so than *Razorhead*. But, um, yeah, marvellous performances all round. Absolutely super. As you would expect from Lynch, beautifully directed, beautifully lit, beautifully shot. As weird as it gets, I mean, it really is an extraordinary odd film. And fi- I think if it is going to be his kind of last great masterpiece, if we overlook Inland Empire, which I think we probably should, it really does feel like it's um, a really good way to have gone out. In fact, I kind of wish he had stopped with Mulholland Drive, to be honest. But, um, uh, yeah, an absolutely superb film.
5: An indisputable masterpiece. I've lost count how many times I've watched this. A dream within a dream, haunting, seductive, and scary as hell. This film is a knockout that consistently takes my breath away.
7: Um, Mulholland Drive. Mulholland Drive is amazing, honestly. Um, it's I think it's the first... David Lynch movie I saw, I, I really really enjoyed it. Um, like the, the, the scene behind the diner is legit one of the scariest scenes in any movie, just any movie, full stop. And when you get, I think it's that it makes sense to a degree, and then you get the silence, and it's such a perfect rug pull that it's it gave life to all of these theories about what it all really means. And I think that, that David Lynch, whether intentional or not, he's quite an enigmatic figure, put this, this level in that's so wide and open for interpretation and so well shot and interesting and well acted. It's one of the early masterpieces of the 21st century
8: um I really think there's nothing scarier than Mulholland Drive I first saw it as a teenager when I rented it from Blockbuster with no idea who David Lynch was or what it would be Uh, and it completely terrified me I had to close my eyes through a lot of it um and then a few years ago I think I probably read about it a lot I'd listened to a lot of podcasts about it I knew I like knew what it was about a lot more I understood the structure and what everything meant um, but I hadn't rewatched it, and I was living in Paris, they were showing it at a cinema, and I went by myself, thinking that I was a grown-up now, I totally understood the film, I knew when the scary parts were, and I wouldn't be scared, and I was so frightened that I almost had to leave the cinema, I'd clearly blocked out, I thought I remembered what the scary scenes were, and I clearly blocked out the the, mo- the most scary ones from my memory, and... Uh, the only reason I didn't leave the cinema was because I didn't want to be judged by all of the other random cinema goers. And I'm glad that I stuck it out, because it's one of the greatest films of all time.
0: For episode 22, I talked to Rob Simpson of the newly titled Director's Uncut podcast. He also works on The Geek Show. Um, Rob Simpson, his favourite film is Ring. Or Ringu, not sure. The Japanese horror film. um, The one that I suppose, in a similar way to Scream and a similar way to Don't Dead, did things to the horror franchises that were completely different. It gave us a different type of villain, I suppose, Um, in Sadako. This is an amazing film. It's actually really, really scary, but it's not gory or gruesome in the way that a lot of people think it is. There aren't any deaths really shown on screen. Um, nobody gets attacked, there's no gore. It, it's, yeah, it's a sedate film from that point of view, but it is scary in a very different way. Anyway, Ian, Kev, Mick and Sarah can probably tell you a little bit better than me what they
3: was It was scary. So kind of scary that doesn't really come around that often, and... I think this one was really good, an
4: excellent film. Ring was hugely important. Uh, it was a film that introduced a whole new generation to Japanese horror films. There have been a lot of them around before. It, it, it's not the sort of the groundbreaking film that people might think it is because there were loads of Japanese horror films before. And in the 60s, there were films like Onibaba, for example, and Kwaidan, which made it over into the West and became really big cult items then. But Ring really opened the door. It not only opened the door for acceptance uh, of um, Japanese horror films in the West, but also inspired Japanese filmmakers to revitalize the Japanese horror films. So it's hugely important, massively important. It's also fantastic. It's such a brilliant film, absolutely wonderful, genuinely frightening they, um, the, the really famous scene, of course, is, is um, Sadako coming through the TV set, which is it's just genuinely scary. Really freaks me out every time. And um, full of just wonderful little touches that I really like. Like the fact that one of the characters announces, I'm a little bit psychic. And everybody else goes, yeah, okay. It's like they, nobody seems to bat an eyelid that somebody says they're psychic. And I just love that about this film. It exists in its own weird little universe where this sort of thing is, just happens every single day. Led to a whole string of rip-offs, remakes, sequels. None of them. uh, Even close to the original. It's a superb film and remains so. And will always be one of the greats of Japanese horror, I think.
1: The most terrifying ring since the Black Death. A Japanese classic so terrifying that you'll want to turn the TV off. But that won't protect you.
8: Um big fan of the ring or ring um although i have a controversial opinion which is that the american remake is better um for me there's just much more to it when it comes to the sort of bad mother character and her job her investigation the research i love all of that stuff um and I just really like that everything's green in the remake. I like Gore Verbinski's completely obsessed with green to a level that I just think is quite funny. Um, Projections podcast also has an episode on this, if anyone's interested. There can be only
0: one. Episode 23 was my episode. Uh, I was privileged to have Matt and James from the journey through sci-fi join me once more. And they talked to me about my favorite film. My favorite film is Highlander. I'm not going to say any more about it because it is my favorite film. And honestly, if you want to know what I think about it, go back and listen to the episode. This is what Gary, Mick, Ian, Kev, Richard, and Rob had to say about it.
10: Highlander is Gav's favorite film. And for that reason alone, everyone much watched it. It is a really good film. The first one, really, really good. Uh, insane casting. Um, Christopher Lambert, I think, was the Highlander. Was that it? um, it's just so many memorable lines. Such a crazy film. I was really, really educated in sort of Dungeons and & Dragons and sort of high fantasy, and it does all of that. Swords. It kind of makes some twisted sense when you watch the first one. Um, it has got its own kind of internal logic that does make sense. Yeah, brilliant film. Good, really good, fun film. I haven't watched it for years, but I'd love to watch it again.
1: There can be only one. Highlander. A fantastic film with a great plot, stunning story, great photography, and Sean Connery, As Sean Connery.
3: Highlander, there can only be one, if only. I remember the second one was the worst film I'd ever seen for quite some time. Lambert is awful in both of them, and the music's really cheesy. But I still like it somehow. I'm not sure why. Nostalgia, maybe.
4: This is, a, again, a, one of those films which possibly... It certainly makes it into my top ten, I think. It, it could have been a contender for my favourite film. It's wonderful. It makes no sense at all. It really is quite a silly film in a lot of ways, but it's just so well done that you just get carried along with it and you just don't care. You've got um, Christopher Lambert playing this... this um, yeah, so you've got Christopher Lambert, a Frenchman, playing a Scottish Highlander, and you've got Sean Connery, a Scotsman, playing an Egyptian... I think is also Spanish. Anyway, it's all very confusing. Uh, don't worry about things like that. Just go along with it. Don't ask too many questions. Buy into the whole... All the action scenes are absolutely wonderful. Really good. And again, it led to sequels. Um, the less said about them, the better. As somebody once said, there can be only one. Um, so, yeah, d- just just stick with the original film, which is just absolutely wonderful, and they've just never been beaten.
6: Highlander is, is one of the films I saw as a uh, young teenager, and... Probably one of the first action films I saw that, and I think maybe Die Hard. And the one thing that stuck with me, despite the plot, despite the fact that it's the best of the three Highlander films, was the soundtrack. And the soundtrack by Queen was fantastic. And I I don't know, there's so many elements in the film. The plot, the way he's essentially stuck in time, immortal, there can be only one, all that stuff. But still, it's kind of magic all the other Queen Sons that are in there. Fantastic film.
7: Highlander is, um, it's a cool action movie. If you think of it, if there's only one Highlander, it's a great 1980s action movie. Even if some of the accents are kind of weird and make no sense. In a, in a on its own, of its own volition, Highlander is a great action movie with swordplay and great characters. Kurgan, I think he's called. Great stuff. When you add the sequels, it kind of diminishes it, but just ignore the sequels. Highlander 1 is a cool 80s action fantasy movie.
0: And that's it. That is the 22 films that I have talked about in Series 1 with some fantastic guests. And when I say fantastic guests, I mean fantastic guests. I started off the series just talking to my friends my family, and towards the end there, I got to meet some fantastic people who do their own podcasting or whatever it is they do. Actors, directors, uh, writers, all sorts of different people. Uh, I have to do some quick, quick recap on shout-outs. Matt and James from Journey Through Sci-Fi, you've joined me a couple of times. Thank you so much, guys. Um, If you you like science fiction, honestly, the Journey Through Sci-Fi is a fantastic podcast. Learning all about sci-fi and, and the different genres, they go through series by series, talking about different subgenres within sci-fi. They are currently doing one on dystopian fiction, and honestly, it's a fantastic series so far. So go and try and find the journey through sci-fi. Um, Mary Wild and Sarah Cleaver, who both joined me from the Projections Podcast. The Projections Podcast is uh, an interesting podcast. They talk about films and they psychoanalyse them, pretty much. And also talk about uh, a lot about um, star signs and the star signs of actors and how that affects the way they they act in films. It's an interesting um, take on it. Um, I think Sarah and Mary are really good. They make me laugh, which is a good thing. I think their podcast is very witty and very clever. Mike Munster, who joined me from the Evolution of Horror podcast. Thank you so much for that, Mike. Um, The Evolution of Horror... Very like the Journey Through Sci-Fi podcast. In fact, I think Matt and James have said they copied Mike's idea. But obviously, instead of science fiction, it talks about horror. He covers different sub-genres of horror from start to finish. He starts with very early films and goes through to the current, or the, the newest versions of that type of film. He's covered all sorts of things so far. Just finished a series on aliens, and I think he's starting on vampires next. So, well worth a listen to if you like your horror. The next two, two other fantastic podcasts here. Um, Graham Williamson of The Geek Show and Pop Screen. Pop Screen is a podcast where Graham talks to a guest every week about a film that is written by, starring or directed by someone who is a pop star, effectively. Um, if you listen to the, that uh, particular podcast, you will find that I've, I've guessed on there uh, just, I think, the three times now. I think only two of them have gone out, but it will be three soon. Um, I talked to him about Beats, Rhymes and Life, A Tribe Called Quest, um, Prince's Purple Rain and coming up will be an episode on Daft Punk's Interstellar 5555. So there you go. Have a listen to them. Uh, And finally, Rob Simpson, who does the Director's Uncut podcast. It's a wonderful idea for a podcast. He basically has a list of loads of directors and randomly selects one in every episode. And then he discusses two of their films in the next episode. I will be appearing very soon on an episode of that about Wes Craven, where I talked about Scream and New Nightmares. That could be a a good episode. Have a listen to that one if you like your horror, again. um, That's all the podcasts. I will also put a quick shout-out for Kevline's E-O-F-D-V, the... Encyclopedia of Fantastic Film and Television. I think I said the letters wrong, but I'm sure you'll be able to find it if you search for it. It's a fantastic website. If you want a resource on science fiction, films, TV, whatever, he has so many reviews on that website. It's unbelievable. He is a very knowledgeable man when it comes to that type of thing. Um, That's it for now. That's it for Series 1. Series 2 will be coming very, very soon. You will see when Series 2 is coming out because I have a brand new logo and that brand new logo will go on to the podcast feed as the new episodes come out. And Series 2, Episode 0 will be coming very soon. In Series 2, everything's pretty much the same. I will be doing a shorter series. We will have a 10-episode series coming up where I will be doing a little introduction episode at the start, the 8 interviews, and then a conclusion episode much like this at the end of Series 2. That will be coming very soon. If you want to support us here on the podcast, the best way of doing it is to pop over to Spotify, where you can give us a five-star rating. Those five-star ratings help the podcast get found. Or you can pop over to Apple Podcasts, where you can actually leave a rating and a review. And I believe that a rating of five stars and then a review with words is more likely to help the podcast get found by other people. This is how the algorithm works, apparently, than just a five-star review on Apple. So if you want to support us, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, five-star ratings, reviews on the Apple one, and that will hopefully help it get found by other people. And that's it. If you want to get in touch with me, please do. The email address, the Twitter feeds, everything like that, we'll all mentioned at the start. They're also going to be in the show notes. Um, thank you so much for listening. The Series 2 will come very, very soon, I promise. So for me, till then, bye-bye. Finally, thanks to Acast for hosting the website and to Max Smith for the theme tune composition. To get in touch with the podcast, remember that website is www.myfavouritfilm.com.